Hello and welcome to Tipperary. My name is Sean Efron. I'm your host, and today we're talking about World War One, as we will be doing every podcast. I am very excited to talk about World War One. It's kind of especially important to me personally. When I was in high school, I remember always being bothered by how we gloss over it. It was like we'd read about World War Two, and World War One only existed because we needed the one before we needed the two. That was stupid to me. That made me angry. And the more I studied it, the more I realized I'd like to tell you about it too. 20 million people died in this war. It's not a small affair. It defined the nations, the borders we live in now. It's fascinating and it's personally influential to us and we ignore it. So this podcast for me is not only a way to talk about World War I, but also a way to show respect to the individuals who experienced it, who lived and died and fought in conditions never before seen and to make sure that we don't forget them. But as much as I want to talk about individual persons, as much as I love how personal history can be, we do need to get sort of the big concepts of history out of the way so that we can talk about the interesting little personal stories. So I'd like to introduce you to a cast of characters. By characters, what I mean here is nations. The nations that really made World War I what it was. I'd like to start with the Germans. Germany's kind of fun this time. It's like Germany only formed in 1871. It's around a place called Prussia because beforehand Germany was a bunch of smaller countries. The Prussians and the Austrians, who are their southern neighbors, kind of duke it out over who gets to lead all the smaller countries. The Prussians win in 1866 in a big war between the Austrians and the Prussians. And then we get Germany. Yay! It's a militaristic industrial power. It's ruled by Kaiser Wilhelm II who is in fact the cousin of both King George VI of England at the time and Tsar Nicholas II. But they really are ambitious. They feel left behind in the quote-unquote colonial game, you know, where the Europeans go around Asia and Africa and the Americas and divide us all. They feel left out, and so they're getting angry. You know, how come we don't get to oppress anyone? And that plays a great deal into their motivations in this war. But I don't want you to think of them as evil either, because they aren't necessarily evil they just want to be equal with their neighbors unfortunately this is a time in human history where equal means who has the most land and the most oppressed peoples under them the military leaders of germany at this time are very important characters and i know like we always hear about them as these over-the-top evil withdrawn figures but you know they're not really they're people we have von malt the younger who's the nephew of a legendary german general von malt the elder who helped unite germany He's the one who's in charge of the whole spiel, and he's a bit indecisive. He's not necessarily stupid, but he doesn't have what his uncle has. Uh, You have under him, on the Western Front, a general named Von Bulow, who is genuinely okay, but he can't control his men. General Von Kluck, who's under Von Bulow, whose whole deal is uh, ignoring whatever he's told, waving a pistol around when people talk to him, and just generally being a nuisance. And Crown Prince Ruprecht, a Bavarian general whose whole deal is to run ahead and try to kill everything. As you can imagine, this isn't going to go well for the Germans in the first year of the war, but we'll be talking about that later. Next to the Germans are the French. The French are one of their main rivals. The French fought the Prussians right before the Prussians became Germany in 1870. And it's only been about, you know, 40-ish years when World War I starts. They're both salty at each other. The Germans want the Alsace-Lorraine land that the French have, and the French want payback. 
they're allied with the English. They're very Republican. You know, I don't mean American Republican. You know what I mean? Uh, they're they're Republic, but they're a little dysfunctional because they're French. Their prime minister is Raymond Poincaré. Poincaré. At this time, they have a few different generals. My personal favorite three are Joffrey, Foch, and Pétain. Joffrey is very intelligent and he's kind of unflappable. He's also known for being slow and fat, and I I don't mean that as an insult, that's what he's known for. Ferdinand Fach, his uh, subordinate, is a very good fighter, but he's a bit jumpy. He's always going after people. And then you have Petain, who is a kind of popular with the men. You know, he's a pretty chill leader, but he keeps men in line and he keeps the war going. All three of these men save France later on, as we'll see. In England, the French the closest allies of the French, and a great rival of the Germans. We have, of course, King George VI and his Prime Minister Henry Asquith. The English government now, today, isn't too different from the one then. It's a little different, but it's the same kind of deal with the Parliament and the King. But they are also a colonial power, right? At this point in time, they have all of this just land and this massive navy. That's why the Germans are jealous of them, and we'll see how that goes. But uh, their leaders for the uh, military include Sir John French, who is, he's all right, but he's just too nervous. Field Marshal Douglas Haig, who is effective, but he's very cold and very aggressive. He doesn't necessarily care about his men. We also have General Rawlinson, who's a good commander, but he's a bit more reserved. He kind of gets sidelined by Haig. We'll see that drama play out when we start talking about soldiers' experiences on the Western Front. Now, to the east of Germany, we have the Russians. They're a sort of feudal nation still. They are much more agricultural, much less industrial than everyone else. And they're ruled by Tsar Nicholas I and the Romanov family. They're trying to catch up with everyone else, and they're they're in a weird spot, but they have a lot of people. Like, what they lack in tech, they can really make up for in sheer numbers. Well, they're, uh, they're doing their best. They... The British and the French are very closely aligned in the Trifontante. However, the Germans aren't alone themselves. They have their Austrian neighbors and the Italians to back them up. The Austrians were once a great empire. This is the Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled by Emperor Franz Joseph I. They are a monarchy. They have not done this whole democracy thing. They don't like democracy. They are held together only by the sheer force of will and sort of societal presence of a monarch, they want, you know, to kind of have a bit more power. What ends up happening is some ethnic tensions in this country actually spark the war. The third member of Germany's Triple Alliance are the Italians. They're a monarchy with a prime minister. They want full national unity. The Austrians have some northern Italian land, and they want some land that the Turks have. Everyone really wants land in this war. The Italians are not alone in this. But they also want to prove that they're one of the big boys. They can really fight like everyone else. And that's how they get drawn to the war. Interestingly, not on the side of the Austrians or the Germans. And we will discuss that later as well. And then we have the Ottomans. They were one of the great empires of the 16th century. Turkey at this time is very much considered European, but it's sort of on the fringes of Europe. In 1908, there's a revolution that reduces the power of the autocratic sultan. It instills a nationalist government with a prime minister, etc., constitution, all that. The Turks, like everyone else, they want some holdings in Asia and some holdings in the Middle East that they're in conflict with the British and the Russians for. 
They do have British uh, officers helping train their navy and German army soldiers helping train their army. They eventually side with the Germans because they think the Germans will win the war easily. Yeah, we, we know how that goes. But I would like to talk about them more later because we kind of ignore them in our schools. We just say, oh yeah, the Turks were there, but this is a whole society, a whole nation of people. And they do a bit of genocide at some point, and both of those things are worth talking about. Then there are some smaller countries like Serbia, which is a Slavic nation. They're angry because Austria has some ethnic Serbs in it. You know how the Russians basically said, hey, we should own Crimea because there are ethnic Russians there back in 2014? This is a bit different from that, but it's the same idea that, hey, this area is majority Serbian, and yet the Austrians rule it, but ethnically it's more Serbian. We should have it. And a terrorist incident by a Serbian nationalist terrorist group actually starts this war. The only other nation I really want to mention right now is Belgium. All they do in this war, unfortunately, is get steamrolled. They're a small kingdom, they're neutral, and they are going to get totally crushed. As our story unfolds, I really want to look at Asia and Africa and those experiences of the war. But to understand 1914 and the beginning of the Western Front and the start of the war, these are our main players. Now that I've introduced sort of our main players in Europe, I, I feel like I should tell you about how the war starts. Because the way we talk about it in school doesn't really cover how almost hilarious it is. So a group probably funded and armed by the Serbians, most certainly composed of ethnic Serbians, called the Black Hand, which is a Serbian nationalist terrorist group, tries to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria when he visits a city called Sarajevo. They try a few different things, including a guy throwing a bomb at the carriage that Franz Ferdinand and his wife are riding in. What ends up happening is the bomb doesn't go off. The man jumps into the river to try to drown himself, and then he realizes the water is too shallow and gets captured. So at first you might be thinking, wait a minute, you know, I, I thought Franz Ferdinand dies, you just said the guys failed. Well, the thing is, he wasn't alone. His friend, his now incredibly famous friend, Gavrilo Princip, sees the assassination attempt fails and says, oh, dang, well, time to get the sandwich. And because of a wrong turn by Franz Ferdinand's driver, Franz Ferdinand and his wife drive past the cafe where our friend Gavrilo Princip is eating. Princip thinks, hey... I have an idea. Then he pulls out the gun and shoots both. Yeah, that, that last bit isn't as funny, is it? But there's a certain irony, a certain hilarity to the whole chain of events. What ends up happening after this is the Austrians get angry. And what they specifically said, because we never talk about this in detail in school, amongst other things, was that they wanted to get to investigate this themselves because they believed the Serbian government was involved. The Serbians, of course, see this as intrusive because if an American whack job were to kill a member of like the British Parliament and the British said, hey, we want to send our equivalent of the FBI to your nation to investigate your government for this, we'd get angry too. This demand was a bit unreasonable and the Serbians knew it was an attack on their sovereignty. But at the same time, history does show that it is likely that members of the Serbian government helped the Black Hand. Nonetheless, as the Austrians and Serbians get tense, what happens is the Germans, who are ethnically similar to the Austrians because they speak the same language, and the Russians, who are ethnic Slavs like the Serbians, begin to take sides. They begin egging on their smaller neighbors, and what ends up happening is diplomacy breaks down. All the various alliances start arming. 
Italy stays neutral for now. Belgium doesn't want to be involved. But all the various political alliances start getting tense. And there's this sort of game of telephone tag that happens between George, Nicholas, and Wilhelm, who, being cousins, call each other Georgie, Nicky, and Willy. They are sending messages back and forth saying things like, if you don't mobilize your men, I won't mobilize men. Let's chill out. Let's sort this out. Let's talk it out. There had been a crisis in 1913 over some disputes about territory and land and ethnicity, which had been resolved by diplomacy, and people thought it could be this time. Unfortunately, what often happened was a mobilization order would be sent, and then people's armies would start getting ready and moving to the border. And by the time that the monarchs had said, oh, you're right, we should chill out, it was too late. Uh, Soldiers were already moving, and people kept escalating until men were on borders preparing to shoot. What also happened here was once diplomacy broke down, there had been a lot of plans made because people had assumed the big war would come at some point that were pigeonholed, you know, thrown into boxes to be used if things got tense. So there was almost this assumption unconsciously in the European societies of the time that any issue like this could become a great war and we need to be ready. The death of Franz Ferdinand was a tragedy and a criminal act. But there was no need for a war, and over the five weeks following that, there were numerous chances to prevent this. But instead, people made their choices. The Germans had a plan to take out the French and then the Russians, but the only way they could do that was to go through Belgium and surround the French forces. They knew that France and Britain alike guaranteed Belgium's neutrality, and the Germans knew that attacking Belgium would draw the British into the war and expand it far beyond even a Germanic Russian conflict. They did so nonetheless, and on August 5th of 1914, the First World War began. Millions would die, lives and countries would be shattered, and even now we still wonder if there's a point to it all. In our next episode, we'll be exploring this war some more, we'll be exploring the stories of the people in it. I'd love to see you then, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Sean Nefron, and this has been Tipperary.